Uh, hello, everybody. This is the EDM panel, and um, thanks for all being here. So as you saw, this panel is entitled EDM, and that's a little, a little broad. So we're going to kind of hone in on, on EDM and the role that technology and digital and social has played in the massive rise that EDM is currently experiencing right now. But I think one thing that I think is going to be really important is I imagine there's a lot of folks here uh, who are thinking to themselves, how can, how can I work um, in the EDM ecosystem? So let's make sure we leave a lot of time for questions. Um, I'm really thrilled to have such a distinguished panel here with me today. Um, some old friends and some new friends. And so we'll start off in the standard way of doing some intros. And so if everybody can just kind of uh, say who you are, where you're from, and why don't we all take a second to kind of share our first EDM awakening, if you will. My name is John Boyle. I'm the Chief Growth Officer and Interim CFO of Insomniac. Um, Insomniac is the largest producer of dance music events in certainly in North America and maybe the world. The marquee event is Electric Daisy Carnival in Las Vegas which in June did 110,000 people a night for three nights. Um, and, uh, and it's a pretty incredible festival, the biggest production on the entire planet. Um, I've been a lifer in the traditional music business, record companies, management, um, primarily on the rock and roll side of things. Um, and my first EDM awakening was with this man right here, Phil Blaine. Uh, I represented a ski resort in Southern California called Snow Valley and Phil and Jerry Girard and Pasquale Rotella, who's the owner of Insomniac, wanted to do a festival called Organic in 1996 that had Orbital, Meat Beat Manifesto, Orb, Chemical Brothers, whom, Underworld. Underworld, and um, we were expecting about 3,000 people and about 7,500 showed up. Infrastructure fell apart, fences going down, not enough porta-potties, not enough water. 30 mile windy road up the hill and everything went absolutely wonderfully and perfect and it was a special special moment in time so next my name is Alexandra Greenberg. I am a vice president at MSOPR in Los Angeles California we're one of the leading music PR houses in America my clients range from major rock acts like the Smashing Pumpkins, Corn, The Offspring. Um, I handled Coachella for the first 10 years. It got so big, they don't need me anymore because they don't need any more press. And I also handle Ultra Music Festival, hard events. I did at one time work with um, Electric Daisy Carnival and Insomniac, and we're still friends. Right? Yeah? All good? Yes. And then I also um, built my companies mostly um, Majority major rock and pop acts like David Bowie's a longtime client, Aerosmith. I built the electronic division of the company. So my clients range from Paul Van Dyke, The Crystal Method, Richie Houghton, Plastic Man, who's doing an amazing uh, tour this fall, college tour, which Ian Golden, if you all were just in the room before, is part of the tour. It's called Control. Dead Mouse is also one of my clients. I've worked with him since the beginning of his career, and I'm very proud of that, his Rolling Stone cover, which really speaks volumes about where music is heading. And then I also work with up-and-coming acts like Cruella. I just signed this amazing artist on Glassnote called, his name is Robert DeLong. You'll be hearing a lot about him next year. 
And there are many more, Borgor, Datsik, Audrey, Napoleon. I just have this amazing roster of, of electronic clients that I'm really excited about. And they're all amazing in their own way. As their publicist, I need to say that, right? So when did I first fall in love with EDM? Well, long time before EDM was even part of our vocabulary like it is today. I fell in love with dance music when I was in high school and I used to sneak out of my house and go to the limelight in New York City and just saw this crazy dude with tattoos all over spinning this amazing music. And I found out later his name was Kaoki. And I'm sure there were other influences at that time that really made me fall in love. I was just excited to get out of the house and I couldn't believe I got away with it. And I was able to dance and have the time of my life. And I always took that with me and, um, you know, uh, have been to a lot of Phil's parties. And um, it's been an amazing ride and really exciting to see the world embracing the music. Thank you. Uh, hey guys, I'm Alexis, and I see a lot of familiar faces in this room. I am co-founder, uh, along with Seth Goldstein and a number of other amazing people, of DJs, which is um, a new media platform launching soon, Halloween, um, essentially for the education and discovery about dance music and DJ culture focused on the younger fans. I'm leading industry relations, business development, um, my background, so... I was a lawyer for YouTube for a long time. Um, I was then a Google ninja, um, incubating new products and services for Google. Um, and I finally got back into the dance music scene and really like focused on educating, um, connecting people with technology, making sure that the industry is served as well as the fans. Um, I'm a complete dance music fanatic. I'm a total tech nerd. Um, I'm an ex-lawyer, which is good and bad in some ways. And I'm a DJ, not a good one, so don't even think about booking me for anything. Um, and my introduction, my, this isn't being live streamed, right? my mother won't hear this, will she? Because, okay, my introduction to dance, oh, okay, my mom won't listen to that. My introduction to dance music was, um, I'm about to age myself greatly here, was uh, late 80s, uh, sneaking into the Hacienda in Manchester. Um, speaking going on. Yeah, <laughs> to, 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 to witness the explosion of dance music there, like seeing people like um, Pickering, Park, Oakenfold, and just basically, for the first time in my life, especially in the 80s in Manchester, seeing people of every race, every culture, every demographic come together in one room and have an amazing time to this incredible, incredible music. And my love for the community started then and through running raves, working with artists, it just continues to grow. I think this is a fabulous community. Hey guys, I'm Ryan. Uh, I'm a reporter at Forbes magazine based in San Francisco. I worked in the past at Bloomberg News and the New York Times uh, the reason I'm here is I uh, actually cover a lot of things. I cover wealth, which is my normal beat. I cover billionaires for Forbes. I do the list. Funny. Um, but I also cover tech and music. So uh, I helped curate the first ever top DJs list for Forbes, which came out in August with uh, a reporter in New York. And um, yeah, I feel like my first electronic music experience was um, Coachella in 06 with Daft Punk. And they... Uh, brought the house down with that so hello my name is jason sperling i started the company skills uh 97 and we do one-off arena style electronic music dance events uh, currently we're doing most of our events at oracle arena uh, my first experience with electronic music was as a raver mid 90s uh, probably early 90s i was into the punk scene ska scene in orange county before college and my friend's like, hey, you want to go to this rave? And 
for a very long time, I was like, no, 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 I don't want to go to that. There were like one or two ravers in the whole school. Finally, I went, and my world changed. People were hugging you. People were smiling. <laughs> and it was just a totally different outlook, philosophy, what have you, than what I came from, from the skateboard punk scene. And I never turned back. And I love every day when I wake up that I get to do what I get to do. Hey, everybody. Sorry, I have a cold. I'm Aaron Axelson. I program a radio station in San Francisco called Live 105. I host a couple radio shows, Soundcheck on Sundays, which is an indie local band show. And I host one of the longest running commercial EDM radio shows called Subsonic, which I launched in 1996 from 4 to 6 in the morning um, when that show launched. Uh, I also, I'm Bay Area native, I grew up in the East Bay. I've worked in record stores my whole life. I used to work in this really good indie mom pa record store called Maud Lang Records in Berkeley. And, uh, oh, thank you. Remember record stores? Who remembers record stores? Raise your hand. <laughs> I started a club 16 years ago called Pop Scene that I've been doing every Thursday in San Francisco for 16 years. And it's uh, a club night which features DJs and bands. Um, we kind of pride ourselves on breaking artists, finding, discovering new bands. It's where Muse first played and Phoenix and Steve Aoki and Calvin Harris and uh, Killers, Amy Winehouse. Um, so yeah, so I've been you know, a music junkie my whole life. I got lucky to, uh, to have a career as, uh, you know, in, in the radio industry and, and as a DJ and a club promoter. I book BFD and Not So Silent Night, our, our flagship radio festivals at the Shoreline and, and Oakland Arena. I book our Halloween show, Spookfest, that we do. We're doing it in three weeks with Calvin Harris and Dotsik and Benny Benassi. My first foray into electronic music is when I discovered an album called Introducing by DJ Shadow. Yeah. And that was a life-changing experience, and that was my impetus to start Subsonic, was because of that album. And I've told DJ Shadow that many times. He blushes when I tell him that. So anyway, that's me. Right on. So, um, so we were talking backstage or in the green room, and um, you know, this is a technology conference and, and uh, a music tech conference. And I mean, one thing that I think everybody shares here is you know, the essence of electronic dance music is community. Um, and soul and what kind of came up in our conversation was really you know back in the day when there was no commercial outlets for DJs and dance and, and, and pure electronic dance music um, these DJs were essentially doing direct to fan before there was technology to facilitate it and then MySpace came and Aaron I think you were the one that was talking about you know how really it were the DJs and the, the dance music artists that, that really embraced MySpace early. So I just, and we're gonna do this conversation style. I'm not gonna ask a lot of questions. So everybody just kind of jump in. And if you have, you know, raise your hand if you wanna add something to it. But why don't you touch on that a little bit? You know, we're just talking about the, the, the two big significant movements in EDM music, at least for the last 20 years. The first wave was in the, the mid 90s when you had Underworld and Tricky and the Bristol scene and Portishead and Crystal Method. Um, and that was a big part of electronic music. It was the first time you had electronic music on commercial radio. You had Prodigy, Fat of the Lamb, selling three million albums in America. And then, you know, trends are very cyclical, and it kind of went underground again and kind of was off the, off the radar for a bit. And I really felt that the next wave happened, really it was sort of ubiquitous with technology and this next wave of social networking, and, and I felt that was another huge component in propelling electronic this next wave that we're currently enjoying right now of electronic music so we kind of touched upon 
Yeah, and, and we were talking about basically, you know, anybody can be a DJ now. So, I mean, Jason, Alexis, why don't you guys chime in on, you know, what, how, and, and we talked about how this is not unique to dance music, but that it's actually much more substantial with dance music. Um, I think from a technical perspective, like when I learned to DJ when I was 18, or I tried to learn to DJ, I had to go out and buy decks and a mixer and vinyl, and it was extremely prohibitive, not only space, but financially. And you see with the, just the, the surge of tech and the way that dance music artists use technology and have started to really push te the boundaries of technology. I mean, people like Ian, who you know designed and invented the S4, the Pioneer S4. Um, it's so easy for these kids who are sat in their bedroom behind the computers, it's so easy for them to go out there and learn how to create their own music. And I think that this is just creating a whole new demographic of artists out there. And these kids, they're the Z generation. They grew up, they were born after the internet was invented. You know, they, they don't remember typewriters, they don't remember Betamax, no one should. But, you know, they, they know how to use technology to help educate themselves, to promote themselves, and to build a following and to build a career, which I think is absolutely fantastic. Jason, what are you seeing out there? Yeah, I mean, I mean, totally agree with what you're saying. I think when when I first started DJing, it was get a turntable, get another turntable and a mixer, and they were very expensive. Um, buying a piece of vinyl, there weren't that many made, maybe 200 press, 500 press. So as an artist, a DJ, whatever have you, you could become pretty big if you had access to the music in your market and slowly kind of work your way out to other markets, where nowadays people can get a laptop, a program, and make a hit track, get signed to an agency, and instantly become start traveling the world as an under build artist and eventually headlining like a lot of these guys are doing and become a super act and it's an exciting time uh, me being as an event organizer i see a lot of things this bubble just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and you know it's 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 a rad time to be involved in electronic music alex uh, alex what are, what are your thoughts on on the um, on technology and and the kids and and what what is what does every aspiring DJ need to have? Like, what is ubiquitous? I mean, SoundCloud, Facebook. Like, what are the tools that if you're if they're if it isn't in your arsenal, then forget about it. Well, I think the first thing to be a success is talent. At the end of the day, you know, you could have the best program in the world that makes your music, but if you don't have the actual thought of what's going behind it, it doesn't really mean anything. But as far as um, you know, getting your music out there, it's such an exciting time because there's all these tools available to you for free, easily accessible that we didn't have, you know, 10, 15 years ago when I started really working in, in this business. And that ranges from starting with Facebook, SoundCloud, um, you know, MP3s, like the internet just made the world so much smaller. And I remember like, when artists first start collaborating together, like, you know, you have the story of like postal service or even like, I don't, you know, just in the early days, you'd have artists like somebody would be in Tokyo and somebody would be in London and they'd be shipping files back and forth with one another and making amazing tracks together. This could never have been done 20 years ago. And, um, you know, so it's just being creative and connecting with, you know, people and, 
it's a lot of opportunity out there. Twitter is another way of, sh of sharing and getting news out there. I mean, you, you kind of all know the usual suspects. So it's just a really exciting time. Um, there's some really great case studies of amazing music that's coming out there. Like, for example, not to bring up Dead Mouse again, but this is a really good story of the creation of The Velt, which was a song that Dead Mouse wrote based on, you know, what he, an inspiration from reading Ray, Ray Bradbury's um, short story. And he wrote this incredible piece of music and put it up there for his fans, talked about it on his Ustream. And this guy, like, writes a vocal, a top line on it, and sings it and sends it, and all, all his fans started saying, hey, you should really pay attention to this. Next thing you know, the song appears on his album that's out now, number six, Billboard, top 200 album. Um, so, you know, the, opportunity, the opportunities are there as long as you take the risk, you know? What's the harm of, like, making a piece of music and tweeting it at somebody? What's the worst they're gonna say? It sucks, they ignore you, or they could say, hey, this is kind of cool. I would love to hear more. And you start a dialogue. The opportunities for dialogue are there. You know, well, I, I, think, I think you can't talk about the social and community nature of EDM without looking at the ticketing business. Um, and there was a really, really incredible infograph that Ticketfly put out recently. And I don't know if any of us have the, the stats. Did you copy uh, any of those stats? We can get up immediately. Uh, but I mean, we're basically, can I we mean. So, no, no, but if there's somebody from Ticketfly, stand up really quick and just give us the brief synopsis of comparing EDM uh, and, and, and how tickets are sold versus every other genre. Yeah, so basically, I was not planning this, but basically we, uh, around in a meeting, a marketing meeting, we wanted to look at how EDM compares to everything else in terms of uh, referral sources and sales. So we took all of our EDM clients and pulled together the data and normally when you're doing a data story, you have to kind of uh, fudge numbers or really dig deep and maybe make some things up. But in the case of this, it was glaring, glaringly obvious that social, uh, social networks and our social tools drive significantly more tickets than for any other genre. And it came out to be six times more tickets from social tools for our EDM clients than all of our other events combined. So that's crazy. The other crazy thing was that search drives two times more, or sorry, social drives two times more tickets than search for EDM events. And normally search drives 50% of our tickets, even though we don't like to admit that. We like to say that our tools drive a lot of them. It's 50%. But for uh, EDM, search is hardly even there. It's social. Um, so those were the big, the big takeaways were just uh, the, the, less, the decreasing importance of search and the increasing importance of social. So, so Jason. And mobile. Thanks, Amy. Facebook on a mobile device also was much more significant. It's not very significant for other events, but for um, EDM events, I believe it was three times more important than for other events. So, Jason, it's gross that I know these stats offhand, but anyway, I think that's it. No, it's it's fascinating. Thank you. I mean, Jason, why don't you touch on this on how you promote shows? Are you buying any any mass media? I mean, Aaron's a little bit different because he is the radio station, but in terms of traditional media. What's its relevance for you now? I mean, the way we market our skills event, we, we still go heavily with paper in the colleges. I think bringing the people in the colleges to our events is really important. I mean, of course, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff. Um, it essentially builds on its own, and we don't really try to force it to build. We've always started grassroots 15, 16, 17 years ago and just built up with that. Um, 
and it's we just let things kind of happen and we haven't tried to go too big too fast you know our first event was a thousand people and now we're selling out arenas pretty consistently and i think with that approach we haven't had to go aggressively into the social media it's sort of come to us Aaron, you want to touch on this a minute? And by the way, Ryan, we're gonna we're gonna get some questions to you, but we gotta fast forward a little bit to come to you. I know I, I agree with all that. I, again, I think it's so vitally important that you can't just rely alone on social networking avenues to promote your events. I think it's a it's a combination. It's a collective of all these elements that go into mm -hmm. building a brand. Mm -hmm. And building a brand comes with building trust with your your audience, your people, your followers, whether it's pop scene or BFD or or skills parties or what you're doing, it's important to you know, have visionaries, have passionate people that are behind the scenes that are booking compelling events with the right artists and DJs and creating a culture within that. Then the next level for us is to take and utilize uh, you know, social networking platforms to involve our community. Well, we have BFD apps, we have Spookfest apps. We, you know, we, we do promotions on, on, you know, via Twitter and whatnot. But again, I think for, from my standpoint, the most important thing is with the BFD is building an amazing, compelling event that's going to, you know, generate 25,000 people. And then so it, you know. Go ahead. It was really interesting, like, the, the, the stats that the Ticketfly guys had on the sort of decline of the importance in search in discovering these events as opposed to social media. And one of the reasons Seth and I founded DJs was I come from a data-driven discovery environment, Google. I thought that the discovery process out there for dance music was so incoherent because there is so much fucking content out there, which is great but it's really hard for fans to discover the content that they need to get to, the legitimate artist channels, the kids doing really good stuff, you know, the GDD kids, the dancing astronaut kids, the really great blogging Poland that's doing amazing stuff. You know, do I, do I want to go to Glowfest? Do I want to go to EDC? There is so much out there. It's so difficult to surface that properly in search. This is why fans are connecting with these social networks because they can connect directly with the artists themselves. I think... And I think that's fantastic because the artist has their true voice. They can talk to their fans directly without being repurposed by anyone else. I think one of the disturbing things I've seen or heard about on the scene is when artists are being booked or required to be booked based on their Facebook likes or they appear in charts, music charts, based on their Facebook likes, their Twitter followers. To me, that is not a reflection of skill. As an artist, that's a reflection of social popularity, which is a good, you know, a good criteria, but not if you're putting them in charts that way or booking them that way. I, th I think that's a bit skewed almost. Well, I'll tell you, you know, um, at Insomniac, you know, the brand is pretty well built and the fan base is out there and we've basically stopped spending money on flyers, print, radio. We still do lots of billboards, but that's really more of kind of branding, overall branding. We do lots of billboards. I mean, we take over the billboards in Vegas during EDC, um, but it's really become about mailing list and social for us pretty much entirely. You know, we'll see as we go into new markets what our need is to do more than that. But um, I mean, I think, you know, part of the overarching, you know, theme here is, you know, the kids, so to speak, they're coming in and they're, they're looking for the right things to do. So it doesn't require that much outreach, really. It just requires having the right people to know that you're doing something and they will come. Right, well also, I mean, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. I think editorial is also a very important part of legitimacy for your event. Um, is it gonna sell tickets for you? As a publicist, I'd like to think it helps. 
I don't know if it's solely responsible. I think you got to do a little bit of everything and spread it around. You just got to have the right editorial. And that's dealing with, like, for example, if we're talking about San Francisco, a preview in the SF Weekly, San Francisco Chronicle. But then also you want to make sure you're reaching, like, the, the blogs are really, really important, like Lesson 3. You know, like love working with those guys. They do quality editorial. They make it exciting. They run amazing photos. They really give a look. And I think the fans really like to see that stuff. And as that's part of my job. Another thing that wasn't happening 15 years ago is I was just really dealing with the weeklies and dailies and markets. But now it's like this whole blog sphere. And it's so exciting. And I just love to see like when I have when my artists do a really cool video or they have a new remix and I can put it out there to the blogs and they're sharing it with everybody. Body and they're, they're, you get feedback and you get to see the fans of what they think. And that's also part of building, you know, the, the popularity, the success, you know, the notoriety of an artist. But I think it's really important building somebody's career. So, yeah, you know what? I would agree with, the, with everything you said about editorial. If anybody's familiar with the history of Insomniac, editorial has played a very important role, positively and negatively, <laughs> in, in the growth of the business. Um, in fact, we just had a, I should have mentioned this early on, but many of you probably know, Insomniac just did its first show in the Bay Area uh, two weeks ago, Beyond Wonderland, at, uh, in the parking lot of Oakland Coliseum. And it was uh, tremendously successful. Um, we had a few noise complaints. I, I don't know if anybody heard about that. So it does go to you know, the yeah. point about about uh, there's always going to be something yeah yeah the good and the bad but but so so i want to fast forward a little bit you know we did this show i mean if anybody came or if you've been to electric daisy or if you've been to jason shows the production um of these shows have just gone to uh absolutely insane insane level um you know the 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 lights the the screens the the sound um and i think you know it all comes back to the experience but what it also is kind of coming to is, you know, this is big business all of a sudden. And so, Ryan, finally, you get your shot. Why don't you kind of lay out what you see uh, as going on with EDM and what it means to the business world, Wall Street, Madison Avenue? Right. So, I mean, this is obviously the first year that we've done a Forbes list uh, on top 10 DJs. And we weren't even thinking about it until we saw Swedish House Mafia kind of sell out Madison Square Garden like nine minutes, I think, was the was the count. And this latest tour sold out instantly. Yeah, four shows around in San Francisco the world, around the country. Now, yeah. just bam, insane. And um, so we were doing a celebrity list, kind of our annual top 100 celebrities, and we saw that Tiesto, Swedish House Mafia, and guys like Skrillex were raking in huge amounts of cash. So I thought about this, and and we kind of spun this off, and did our own thing. And I looked into it a little more. And you, got, you have Tiesto now making $22 million a year, Skrillex making $17 million a year, playing hundreds of shows uh, across the world. And it's amazing. And um, I mean, I saw a stat at IMS in, in Ibiza, and um, I think I, they were estimating that the, the industry is going to be $4 billion a year. And, and that speaks volumes of how EDM has grown over here the last two or three years. And, and just, just to give a little bit more perspective on the artist business here, I'm, as a former artist manager, when you're dealing with a band, and let's just say you make $100,000 a show, you know, you're paying 10% to your agent, 15% to your manager, 
in some cases, 5% to maybe your accountant and maybe even 5% to your, uh, to your lawyer. That would be 35% coming off the top. Then you got four band guys, but before they get paid, you've got all your production costs. And by the time the band gets paid, they're making chump change. Um, well, on $100,000, they're not making chump change, but, but propor proportionately, they're, making, they're not making much. If you're a DJ, Many of these DJs are traveling with one tour manager. Yes, they've got their agent. Yes, they've got their manager. It, in, the in the case of festivals, they're not paying for any production. Um, so, I mean, the, what, what, that, what that DJ is netting is... It's definitely a, it's a lot leaner for them. I mean, they don't have to deal with, like you said, the, the production costs, the, the roadies, the... Everyone's setting it up, so. Oh, yeah. It depends who you're talking yeah. about there, because there are artists with, they they bring in, they put out as much as they bring in and put into their production. It just really depends. I mean, you yeah. look at, and people are like, oh my God, these poor DJs, they're making millions millions of dollars. If you look at anyone who's at the top of their industry, whether it's the tech industry, the banking industry, you know, great lawyers, et cetera, they're making a shitload of cash and they're making a lot of money because they're really fucking good at what they do. And then, these guys, I've seen them, I spend a lot of time backstage at these events, I tour with a couple of artists. These kids work so hard. Sometimes they hit three shows a day and they're, they're sleeping in corridors. They're not flying around on private jets and you know, being carried everywhere by minions. They're working because they love doing what they're doing. They love performing to audiences. They love meeting their fans. And a lot of them have their own labels. They take the money they earn and they invest that back into labels. And what's really unique about the dance community is a lot of their labels, if you look at Owsler, you know, if you look at what Hugo's doing with pop culture, they are putting money into those labels and they're bringing young artists on and they're encouraging young artists. So what Skrillex do with Porter and the M Machine, they're actually sinking money back into this business because they've done it themselves and they believe in this business and they believe in encouraging young artists. So when people come to me and say they earn too much money, I'm like, a, they're really talented, B, they work really hard, and C, they're reinvesting in their community. I think they deserve everything they earn, quite frankly. Yeah. And for a lot of these guys, they're not, they're not doing it for the money. I mean, Tiesto has been doing this since the early 90s, um, and he was DJing shows for $50 a, $50 a show. Now he makes around 250 k a show. I mean, th the amount that it's grown doesn't really reflect how their dedication they put into it and the money that they reinvest back into their, into their shows. Should, should we talk about um, music sales? Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Um, I wish I had some stats, but Beatport is one of my clients. And um, uh, I don't have any stats in front of me, but when I first knew about Beatport, it was a very small company. They kind of sold, sold a couple things online. Now they're, they work with thousands upon thousands of labels. And I think over the last, is Anthony Bruno in this room? He was, oh damn, because he knows these stats. Um, anyways, they're now like something like nine billion downloads sold and that's WAV files and MP3s. So that's another thing that's really important to us as in the electronic music business is the quality of the music. And I'm not talking about the actual like artistry. I'm talking about like, how does it sound? When the guys go out and they play in live rooms or they're on the radio, like what is it, how does the music actually sound? And technology is such a big part of that. So if you're a developer that's, or you know, working on new technologies about the improvement of music, that's something that, you know, is very vital to our particular part of the industry. And vinyl too, that's another big, portion that's you know starting to come back a lot more people are buying vinyl i don't know if that's maybe more rock but um but yeah that's another part too so and just how music is played 
you know everything from like the iPod to you know the iPod dock the Sonos like there's so, the the way people actually listen to music is such a big important part for our industry and technology and I think your point about technology in the industry is a really good one so Beatport obviously Richie Horton is a big part of Beatport the one of the differences I see in this industry is all of these artists absolutely get technology and therefore they embrace new and sometimes disruptive technology. They are some of the first people who get it, who adopt it over and above any other different type of genre. And so if you are a developer, if you are a new tech company, then you know it's, it's, it's a great space to be working with the artists in that industry. I think one of the things I would say is I always try, because I know the artist industry and I know the tech industry, always try and think about something on a 360 degree basis. You know, if this is serving the fans, is it also serving the industry? Is this something that is giving the artist meaning? If it's something that are driving additional revenues, are we creating value for the industry that we're building the product off the back yeah. of? Enhancing the live experience, like mm -hmm. going to, a con we were talking about Shazam earlier, you know, just that kind of technology of a fan being in a club and loving a song, doesn't know what it is, holds up their I iPhone and they all of a sudden get something comes in and tells them exactly what it is. That's amazing. And I think um, I think a lot of the artists that I work with would like to see more of that kind of technology, enhancing the fan experience when they go when they go out and perform for their for their fans. Mm -hmm. So so we're we're talking a lot about the DJs who are super talented and who have paid their dues and who are now kind of reaping, you know, the rewards that come with that. But, you know, we're also seeing a whole, a whole bunch of other, you know, Polly, whatever that guy's name is, and you know, Paris Hilton's now a DJ, and I think, I think. Why are we talking about her? Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think Joel and Dead Mouse has been extremely critical of a lot of these kind of newbies coming into the scene, pressing buttons, who are bringing down the integrity of what these leaders in the business are doing. So we should touch on that. You have anything? Uh, I'd, I'd rather talk about new talents and uh, and not just DJs, but what about live electronic artists? Like things that like uh, what people like Robert DeLong, when I saw him live, he's got a drum kit. He's got he's doing things with a remote control, vintage joystick. Like I want to talk about those kind of artists. Who are they and how are we getting their them out there? How are we using technology and from everything from live instrumentation. Who's building new instruments in here? How about the visual artists? Yes, the visual artists, thank you. Very important. Oh my God, has anyone seen Infected Mushroom Show? Yeah. Uh, Infected Mushroom worked with the same people that Eamon Tobin did and blew, yes, blew, I think that blows that show away. I highly recommend if you have a chance, see Infected Mushroom Show, it is awesome. Right. Well, that's the thing. I mean, a lot of people can't get their heads around that electronic artists. I mean, there's a difference between a DJ, somebody that goes up there and plays somebody else's music, but most of these guys are playing their own music and, you know, they're programming a computer live and has like, have like 18 remix programs in their, in their laptop and doing things right on the fly there, just the same way somebody strums a guitar or beats a drum and just people can't get their heads around it, unfortunately. I, right. Well, I, mean, I disagree the, with that. I don't I'll think it's the promoters. Sorry to interrupt. The, well, but, but I the think the majority of promoters that work with this music do do that. They treat these guys like artists. I know Velo oh, well, you're talking about Velo because he's a visual artist. I thought you were talking about the music artist. But Velo... DJs. DJs. 
the VJs. You were saying DJs. I'm sorry. DJs. Yes. Visual artists. Well, yes. I mean, Velo works on a lot of the festival properties and the artists I, I work on. And believe me, I promote him very much in that atmosphere. And he does get a lot of cred for that. I actually get more people sometimes that want to talk to him rather than the artist about what he's doing visually. Well, my thought is maybe Velo should flip the bird and start doing his own event and do it as a visual event and not a music event and bring in curate his own own fans and his own music that he likes and he do it and brand himself that's what I would do and I think a lot of this is about education as well like if I I I know the whole scene I know in 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 a in an event there's a whole bunch of players behind that event so if you look at Skrillex's setup for example you've got Simon at Stageworks you know you've got all the guys behind that you know he's getting the phone call at 3am and Skrillex is like I want a spaceship and he's like okay I'll build a spaceship um, and the stuff that goes into that and you know it, a, lot, a lot of great editorial can come out of that as well actually promoting and, and exposing what these guys do I think even down and this is a conversation I had with John of you um, just after EDC even talking about the security guards at these festivals like do you really want to be a security guard for a festival of 150,000 kids like that's a hard job like what, what's their story you know what are the stories of the guys who are doing the lighting but we do the list security on IMDB okay well, that's good then you, you're good but I, I think it's definitely an education for the industry as they become more and more relevant I think they will get more and more leverage in respect of being featured as an artist etc because they do do beautiful things it wasn't, no, no, I'm, I wasn't marginalizing, I was just giving an example. There's education around every single aspect, you know, whether it's the guy behind the sound desk who's, who's producing this beautiful sound, which is a skill in itself. It's like, there's so many stories. I, 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 th- I would agree with what you're saying. I think your point is very, very well taken. And I do think that, you know, Velo um, and, and these, these creators, um, they're... they're they're having their day and their day is going to get better and better. You know, I, I, I know Velo loosely, but I mean, do these guys really want to be stars or do they just want to be well paid? And, 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 and you know, I, I think there's something um, nice about not being that face, but being compensated adequately for your, for your value that you bring to the show. I think you should be their manager. Yeah. <laughs> Jason, Aaron, did you guys want to chime in on this? I know you were just going to say... You know. I was going to say, like, Jason, with his skills parties he's been throwing for years, like, I know you, like, with the visuals is a big part of what mm-hmm. you do, but you would promote who is doing the lasers or the visuals. Sure. They, they became yeah. synonymous with the skill party. Um, yeah. We, uh, we, we, you know, Grant Davis and stuff like that, we, we always added them and promoted them, and we still do, the, v, the VJs we work with. Generally, we bring our own VJs to our arena events. <clears throat> And a few of maybe two or three of the eight headlining acts will bring their VJ. Their VJ plugs in, we make sure it's all set up, and they do their own thing. And our VJ just kind of hangs out and waits till their performance is done. So, you know, we're not really in direct um, connection with the artist VJ other than, hey, I'm going to come here. I just want to make sure you have this gear and this will hook up at this time. What time can I come? That's as far as the, our relationship has ever really gone. And I think it really starts with the agencies. If they want to connect the artist to the VJ, then that probably needs to happen when the booking happens. And the promoter organizer will take it a lot more seriously um, because we only do what we're told to do. 
I work with Ultra Music Festival and Velo does amazing work for them. And we publicize him, like I work with his PR team and we, they, we do a press release. He, media are invited to talk to him about what he's doing. He's definitely treated, I think, like any other artist. Yeah, well, when you get to do the quality of work and you work with the caliber of people that Velo does, yes, absolutely. But then there's... Point well taken. <laughs> Moving right along. Aaron. No, I, I'm, I'm done with that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say something else, but I'm good. Uh, so, all right, so we got 15 minutes. Um, just, I think, one more thing for us up here. As, as this craziness is going on that we all are living daily, um, and, you know, I, I think uh, it seems to me, you know, EDM is now the driver of pop culture out there when it comes to advertising and, and everything. You know, how do we, how do we, and this is kind of a, uh, cliche question, but but how do we sustain community and soul while this thing gets so massive? And I just open that up to the panel. Um, I'll go first, and then probably I think it's about making the right choices. For me, um, seeing the community across a 360 degree perspective, it's about surfacing. There are a lot of people doing fantastic stuff out there, either through technology or editorial or video or imagery or music and it's about really surfacing those people and making sure that they are accessible and are discovered by the fans and the fans can engage with them in meaningful ways and from a technology perspective it's about working with the industry to create really fucking sick products to engage fans on many many different levels whether they're too young to go to the shows whether they're in Kansas and they love Borgor, but they're never gonna get to go to Coachella. You know, it's, it's, it's all about working together to, to sustain the industry and basically, I don't know, almost protect the industry from the people who are just there to make money out of it and not give back, which all sounds very hippie, but that's the way I feel. I know from programming a major market radio station, and you know, the Bay Area has a, has a rich history of electronic music, um, and again, it's very cyclical, but over the last few years, it's been important as a programmer for me to embrace this beyond Subsonic and Soundcheck and the dance tent at BFD. It's incredible to see the impact electronic music has had over the last few years and how it's infiltrated mainstream culture in a positive way. You know, it's, back in March, I do these big focus groups uh, for the radio station. We, we test music. And when I saw Skrillex testing better than Smells Like Teen Spirit, I'm like, all right, something's going on here. It was, just, it was pretty awesome. telling, you know? Um, but for us as a radio station, it's, it's a very passionate, young, vibrant culture. And we've, Eleven Five's, you know, historically started as, you know, playing New Order and Meat Beat Manifesto and having an electronic history. But for, for, for now, it's important, the culture and the, uh, the community for us to embrace it. And it's exciting to see some of these artists can transcend beyond my Saturday Night Mix show into regular rotation and become viable artists for, uh, for the alternative format. Yeah, I mean, just, just to give you all a, a little bit of context, many of you may have read this already, but, you know, Michael Rapino, CEO of Live Nation, quoted wisely, I think, that, you know, this is the new rock and roll. Um, you know, we haven't seen a cultural shift driven by music since the 60s with rock and roll. I mean, some of us were around and involved with the grunge era, but this doesn't even compare uh, at all. Um, and, you know, um, those of us on the live side of the, the business, I mean, there is a projection that I think will be true. There will be twice as many tickets sold to dance music events in 2013 as there was in 2012. 100% growth in one year, bananas. And I'm sure there's some amazing stats about record, I mean, about digital sales. Right. Mm -hmm. 
that's another thing that's really key, quality of music, digital sales. So let's open it up for questions. Questions. David Hazen. He said it's about making the right choices and coming from a branding uh, background myself. Interesting to contrast Skrillex refusing to take any kind of sponsorship or brand endorsement where Avicii is in right in there with the Ralph Lauren ads, his arena dates tank, you know, doing too much too fast. We're living in a time where there's more acceptance of working with brands, yet kids that love this stuff love it because it's not, quote, mainstream, even though 250,000 people buy a ticket to the festival. So what's the right general approach? Of course, it varies artist to artist, but what's the right way for an artist protecting their, their image to work with brands, if at all, um, within this context? And obviously, festivals have their own sponsors. I'm talking about the individual artists. I think it's, 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 it's as with anyone who um, has a celebrity image. Like They look at brands that fit their lifestyle, that fit their, their fan demographic, and actually just, just fit their philosophy as well, because just latching onto a brand because it's going to throw three million dollars at you which all these artists are getting or whatever just they're getting hit up by all the time you know i'm sure starbucks has approached every single one of them and said hey you know can you be pictured with a starbucks in your hand when you're on stage but for for the artists that i know it's about a meaningful association it's either about something they support so you see what bass nectar is doing with his dollars per bass head campaign he's supporting some incredible charities um you look at what steve's doing steve Aoki, incredible businessman you know he's out there supporting you know, really and endorsing really great headphones brands, you know, really, I think it's about the artist and for the, for the brand that's coming to the artist, really picking a fit that is meaningful for them and is meaningful for their image. Right. Skrillex wanted to find a brand that matched, he could. Clearly there's a deliberate effort on his part to not associate himself. <coughs> is he making himself more viable for the long term in doing so? I think that's. Opinion. I think that's just his. That's his. Philosophy. That's his way of life. Mm -hmm. That's his personal. I mean, he comes. He's, you know, before he was Skrillex, he was Sunny. Uh, you know, from first band. to last on the cover of Alternative Press, and that's his punk rock demo. Maybe he feels that he doesn't need to need that. You know, he makes his music. He goes out on tour. His fans and some artists just feel that way. They don't feel that they need brand association. Mm -hmm. And if that works for him, it seems to be working, then mm -hmm. great. Right. And a, a good example or a positive example for an artist that didn't have any, was a, a, a up-and-coming artist out of the UK, Alex Clare, you know, he did that deal with Internet Explorer and, and ended up selling a million digital downloads in America. He didn't have a brand already. He wasn't already established. He was an up-and-coming artist. That's an example where he utilized an association as a springboard, a, brand, uh, a sponsorship, to help launch his song. Yeah. Incredible track, yeah. though. It is an incredible track, too. I mean, you know. It's the combination of it all, but right. still, selling a million digital downloads in America mm -hmm. is pretty yeah. impressive. I mean, you know, every artist is different. Look at Calvin Harris, for mm -hmm. example, and his relationship with Pepsi. I mean, they helped, you know, they helped perpetuate that, you know, the Neo track, Let's Go. It's like an international, worldwide hit. It got Calvin in a commercial. It really helped carry that song everywhere. Um, but would you know? Would a Pepsi relationship work for a bass nectar? Maybe not. You know, everybody's different. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to entertain and educate and find out what yeah. works for you. But some people need it. Some people don't. The uh, the French band Phoenix put out six albums on Astroworks. Developed a little strong, loyal cult following. But it was really a Cadillac commercial for 1901 that propelled them yeah. to huge success. So it depends on the situation. I think. Question. Passes. Which was really culturally impactful 
which would would have been uh, obviously hip hop music, um, and then we saw kind of it took hip hop music a while to get to the mainstream, and then for a while hip hop music in a pop urban pop form, top forty form was the club music for a long period of time, and it just it got worse and worse and worse and. You know, after you know FCC legalized like the kind of the quote unquote takeover of radio, uh, with you know the Clear Channel being able to own a certain amount of stuff, and things got more homogenized locally um, with with the same playlists everywhere, and and the fact that labels were going under and downloads were going up and album sales were going down, it was all about singles and and you know cornier stuff. The hip hop scene started to kind of is in a in a pop sense was fell off you know, and got, it got worse and worse. And the one thing that, that bothers me right now with the quote-unquote EDM, which I don't even know really that is, it's, you know, such a broad term or generic term, is that it's basically became the mainstream top 40 music overnight. And it's very risky in that, you know, you, you know what happens once things are top 40, right? And so I, I think some of these artists like Deadmau5 or Skrillex or Smart, to sort of stay away from that that uh, popularity in a way, uh, I think Dead Mouse compared it to like a sinking ship that he was swimming away from or something. I don't know when he was upset about the button pushing thing and all that other stuff. But I think everyone who's involved, whether it be you know big promoters, you know big radio folks, agents, etc., need to be really careful with how we're we're using it. You know. Um, <laughs> The Avicii point is really good, you know. I, there's obviously someone behind Avicii who is milking that cow to make as much money as they can in a very short period of time, and he's not really controlling his career, and he might not be around in a few years where Dead Mouse could headline a festival probably in 20 years and still be relevant. But I'm wondering if the big artists that are very popular in EDM right now, are they going to be headlining festivals in 10, 20 years like Madonna will be, or maybe even Kanye West, I don't know. And so I think it's very easy to use EDM right now, as I'm a promoter myself, but we have to sort of be careful with trying to make too much money off of it too fast. And, and it's got to be more about the skills and, and, the, and the crowd. I think Insomniac does that the best as far as, you know, you guys recently started putting... Uh, the discovery uh, projects. Yeah. Discovery projects, but then the, uh, the listings of artists in alphabetical order on the flyer. Yeah. So these agents can't really say anything because the agents want one artist higher than the other. And they want more money for artists that aren't necessarily, you know, maybe it's because they have more Facebook likes, so they should get more money. Uh, and the promoters have to pay for it. So I think what Insomniac's doing is putting them in alphabetical order, saying, hey, it's about the Insomniac brand and the people that come more so than just the, the superstar DJ. Well, it's, you know, our, our philosophy is the fan is the headliner. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the DJ is the soundtrack. So mm -hmm. I, I, so I, I have appreciate one, the I have one comment on that. Richie Horton said a fantastic thing about two years ago um, in an interview with Berlin Magazine, which those of you who know me are sick of me saying this. I just think it's such a fantastic quote. He said, everybody needs an introduction point to something they're going to be passionate about. Mm -hmm. And for me, the dance music industry may have provided that, you know, with these collaborations with people like Getter or Avicii, if that's mainstream, then so be it, because it's bringing these kids in. And this is such a rich tapestry of music that underlies this community. Once they're in there and you work with them to educate them about the skills, about the different genres, about the dance music, 
it's a huge world to navigate. And I think if that's the hook that gets them in there, then then so be it. And good luck to those guys and may they have a you know, long sustaining career, but it is so rich. Um, it's like insomnia, you know, kids may pay because of the headliner, but they'll go and they'll go to the Discovery Project and find six or seven new artists that they never even heard of. The, the biggest difference that we've seen promoting uh, parties and shows you know, over the last four or five years in San Francisco is uh, it's not as niche anymore. Uh, you know, some yuppie marina kids could have gone to Coachella and done some things there that made them <laughs> like a certain kind of music. And so now they're more, now they're more willing to listen to other genres of music. Whereas like when I, I came up in the late nineties, mid to late nineties on hip hop stuff, and it was, it was very, you know, the term hater came from the Bay Area. And it was very much like, this is real, this is fake, I only listen to this. And it was, it, people wouldn't really open up their minds to listen to different music. And I think the one thing that EDM isn't really getting as, enough credit for is it's opening up all these different sounds to people. So you might have started to like, you know, Dead Mouse, but two years later now you're into something totally different and you're not not as judgmental, I guess, you know, maybe more accepting of, of other people. So I think that's pretty cool. Nice. Well said. Okay. One last question we have time for. I think gentlemen in the back there. Hey, I'm Jordan from Turnbull. My question's for you, Aaron, actually. Um, you, know, you brought up Alex Claire. You know, Alex was signed to Island, a major label. Couldn't get it on the radio. They're on the verge of dropping him and they got this sync. And now, you know, six months later, he sold a million singles. Um, when, you know, I'll give Live 105 a lot of credit for being forward thinkers when it comes to EDM and new genres, but... They always have been. Yeah, and, and but, you know, where, where I'm from, I'm from the South, my alternative radio station back home where my parents live is still playing grunge music. Yeah, when they is, love Collective Soul still, don't they? Right, you know, it's... <laughs> Who doesn't? I, I can only hear lightning crashes so many times, but, you know, but... When is this really going to infiltrate radio? You know, I've, I've heard Skrillex on the radio five times, but that's really about it. If, if there's so much money to be made here, it should start at radio like everything else. Right. I'm I, wondering when that's going to happen. It's happening on the West Coast. I'm seeing commercial. I'm K-Rock in Los Angeles, 91X in San Diego, The End in Seattle, us in San Francisco. It's important for radio stations to, to be one step ahead of our listeners, not, you know, five steps ahead. So it's still the majority of our listeners. It's still new music. Um, you know, you have a, your hyper super core listener that's on the blogs and super tastemaker finding the new stuff. That represents 1% of my audience. 99% of my 850,000 weekly listeners are content with hearing mainstream music. I equate it to getting, turning new music on to my listeners is like getting a three-year-old to eat broccoli. The best way to get a three-year-old to eat broccoli is to smother it in cheddar cheese. Well, yeah, but now we have and that's what I do when I, introduce, and, right, and when I introduce base nectar to the, to the Bay Area, I'm smothering next to Sublime and Lincoln Park. So the you know what I mean? There's a, a way of a palatable approach to bringing electronic underground music to the mainstream. Subsonic listeners are different. That's my hardcore listeners that are going to drum and bass clubs and following EDM music. And that, but, but from taking it to the mainstream, again, it's kind of a real delicate process. I can't be too ahead of the curve. But I am seeing changes in, in, in culture, especially on the West Coast, leading the way with, with electronic music infiltrating our playlist. I think it's a great thing. If you look at top 40 playlist, half those tracks are being produced by DJ producers. So yeah, I yeah. think I think the infiltration's happening uh, right as that's, we speak. That's a great so. question, though, man. Thanks. So anyway, I think we're done. Thank you so much. <laughs>